At the end of chapter 27, they had no idea where in the world they were, what island, what land they had landed on. But in chapter 28, they're going to learn that it is Malta that they have landed on. Malta lies about 60 miles south of the island of Sicily and 500 miles west of Crete. The island is about 18 miles long and 8 miles wide, so it's not a big island. They were shipwrecked while it was raining, and this time of the year the temperatures would be between 50 degrees Fahrenheit, with a long, miserable rain. Remember, it's been raining multiple days for them in the middle of a hurricane. They are drenched to the bone. They have been immersed into the ocean, and they have now been washed up on the shore, and they're still wet. It's still raining. So 55 degrees would be quite bone-chilling when you're wet and you've been in it for multiple days. So this is an uncomfortable experience in any kind of a way. Chapter 28, verse 1. After we had safely reached shore, we learned that the island was called Malta. The local inhabitants showed us the extraordinary kindness, for they built a fire and welcomed us because it had started to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of brushwood and was putting it on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the local people saw the creature hanging from Paul's hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Although he had escaped from the sea, justice herself had not allowed him to live. However, Paul shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was going to swell up or suddenly drop dead. So after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happening to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Paul is putting this firewood on, and the viper came out and bit him and hung onto him, hanging off. That would be pretty scary. And this is poisonous, obviously. A lot of people have disputed whether this is an actual viper or snake like that because vipers don't like grab a hold of you and stick to you. They strike and then remove back. And so some people are like, no, this is not possible. Another example of the Bible getting it all wrong. The problem is it says that it had come like it had been awakened, so to speak, not literally come awake, but from the fire, the heat. This is coming out of winter. And these serpents or these vipers would hibernate. And if you've ever seen a, a reptile hibernating in the cold, they're incredibly lethargic. As he is disturbing it with the firewood, most likely it struck, but it didn't quite have the energy, like your elementary school kid getting out of the bed in the morning, to really just let go and re- rear back. And so it just kind of hung there for a while, and he was able to remove it. And so that's probably most likely what's happening, and that's attested by zoologists and that kind of stuff who come in and said yes. Um, They don't always operate that way all the time. Well, it's interesting. Right here, you get in a nutshell their their, their belief. They've seen this guy shipwrecked in the ocean of the storm. We talked about this when we were in chapter 26 and 27. And basically, they assume, oh, the gods love him. They have vindicated him anything. They have let him live. But then he gets struck by a viper and he's about to die. And they're like, no, wait a minute. The gods actually hate him. And then he's like not dying. And they're like, oh, wait a minute. He must be a god. So, like, they've immediately waved back and forth. This, But it just shows you how they view calamity and coming under. And remember, the three major symbols of chaos in the ancient world, and even today in most cultures, is the sea, the serpent, and darkness. So he escaped the sea, but now the serpent got him, and now he's escaped the serpent. And so, and obviously he's escaped the darkness, because this has all happened in the midst of that. 
And so at this point, they're realizing, wow, if he's come through all three of these things and survived, he must be a god. We saw this earlier with Barnabas and Paul. The previous time that there was a miraculous healing like this, the, the locals immediately began to worship him. And they immediately began to think he was a god like they are here, and they began to worship him. And they immediately thought that they were Zeus and Hermes. And they began to bow down and worship them. And it took a, a long time for Paul and Barnabas to convince them that they weren't a god, most likely because they didn't speak the same language. And what we see here is the same incident again, but there's no mention of them worshiping him. There's no mention of a rebuke of them being worshipped. The implication probably here is that they were able to very quickly correct these people, unlike last time. But even if they no longer see them as a god and do not worship them in that way, it would be very clear that they would definitely see them as vindicated of any kind of a crime. They would definitely see them as blessed by the gods. And knowing Paul from everything that we've seen from him and what we saw from Peter and Philip and Stephen, he definitely sees this as an opportunity to share the gospel and point them towards Christ and who he was. This would be another opportunity wherever Paul goes, even in the midst of a drizzle and a rain and right after crawling out of the ocean in a shipwreck, the gospel is being preached and people are coming to understand who Christ is in this incident. Verse 7, Now the region around the place where fields belonged to the chief official of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us hospitably as guests for three days. The father of Publius, Publius lay sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery, and Paul went in to see him, and after praying, placed his hands on him and healed him. And after this had happened, many of the people on the island who were sick also came and were healed, and they also bestowed many honors, and when we were preparing to sail, they gave us all the supplies we needed. The Publius would have been the Roman governor of Malta, this teeny little island, and his father is sick. And Paul, once again, does, does healings like he has in the past. Remember, they are literally on the other side of the Mediterranean now. So the account of Paul's healing at Malta is quite similar to the account of Jesus' healing at the Capernaum at the beginning of his ministry. In both cases of the healing, individual is followed by the healing of all, or the rest in the region. The individual, a relative of the healer's host, has been seized by a fever. There is also reference to laying on of hands, and the similarities show that Jesus' healing ministry still continues through his witnesses with benefit to both to the host who receives the healer and to the whole community. A scene from the beginning of Jesus' ministry is echoed in the last description of healing in Acts, suggesting a chiastic relationship. Chiastic basically means mirroring things, where you have a series of events which are followed by a pivotal event, which those series of events are repeated again in a slightly different way in order to emphasize that event. And so basically what you have is we're coming to the end of the gospel books, so to speak. So Luke has two gospel books, the gospel of Luke and then the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And these two are the coming of Christ in his ministry and the coming of the Holy Spirit in his ministry. And this is the last of the narrative books. And so Luke begins his stories with Jesus doing healings. Healings for the, the, the hosts, which then follows with all the people being healed. And then now his own disciples 
are ending out their ministries with the healing of a host and the healing of all those who follow. And the idea is that what Christ did and what Christ commanded his disciples to do is very much for his followers even after he has left. And we have seen that over and over and over again in the book of Acts. And there is no sign, no hint in any kind of way that this is dwindling or coming to in the end. Yes, there are no more miraculous escapes from prisons. There are no more miraculous gates opening up and earthquakes and that kind of stuff for Paul. And he will have one final release but be thrown back into prison again where he'll be executed. But there's still healings. There's still all these things. And by no more miraculous escapes from prisons, I mean in the book, not like forever. So... Um, so just because we're seeing a dwindling of some miraculous things does not mean that this is a sign of cessation, of an ending of these gifts or these abilities or the miracles for any of the people here. There's no hint of that. So he continues to do his ministry. And of course, now off this little island, they're going to sail directly north towards Rome or Italy. They will come to the boot of Italy and then they will begin to walk up to Rome, as you will see on your map. Verse 11. After three months, we put out to sea in the, an Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island and had the heavenly twins as its figurehead. So another Alexandrian grain ship actually successfully made it this time. It wintered somewhere out there and it's now made its way to Malta. And so they transfer everything to this new Alexandrian grain ship. And the figureheads that are on the front of the ship are the figureheads of Castor and Pollux. They're the twin gods. You know them. Well, you might or you might not. But if you do know them, you know them as Gemini twins, which we have Polaris and Gemini up here in Columbus. So they're the Gemini twins or the constellation Gemini of the two twins. And they are reared up on the boat. And many, many people have asked the question, why in the world would Luke point that out? I mean, nowhere, I mean, these are two pagan gods that are specifically pointed out on this ship. And so the question is, why is he mentioning that? One possibility is he could be pointing out the fact he's contrasting the provision of the care of the twins of Gemini with that of Yahweh. That most likely there is probably two, a god or something. I mean, every Roman ship, every Greek ship had some kind of figurine on the front then they all would have been pagan or a deity in some kind of a way. And yet, whatever ship he was on crashed and was ripped apart. And, 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 and everybody would have died if it hadn't been for Yahweh taking care of them. And they have all miraculously escaped. And now they're getting on a new ship with another god. And the idea is Yahweh's sovereign over all of this. It doesn't matter what's on this ship. And Luke might be pointing out as an irony or whatever that kind of stuff. The other possibility is these two gods, Castor and Pollux, are directly associated with the Roman emperor. They are the, the images of his power, his authority. And they're so linked together in the same way that Ra and the Pharaoh of Egypt were intrinsically linked together and inseparable from each other. And everywhere where the Roman emperor went, these two images of the Gemini twins were present everywhere, like either on his flags and banners or a shield or his armor or something. And so they were the, one of the most recognizable symbols of the Roman emperor and his power. And this is what's going to bring him to Rome. And it could be Luke's way of saying, 
that Jesus said to Paul that eventually he would make it to Rome and that he would stand before Caesar and preach his gospel before him. And as we read the gospel, um, the message here and the Acts, we learn that Paul walks away from Caesar alive and successfully. And so the idea is that he is now in the hands of Caesar and Caesar is now welcoming him before he's even arrived at Caesar and Caesar's going to embrace him teaching and preaching. Not necessarily saying he's going to convert, because Nero will not convert. Um, he will go insane after these years. But that he's now in the hands of God, and always has been, and he's ushering him in. But now even the Roman Empire and Caesar is going to receive him and bring him right into the heart of his power and, and vindicate him. And we have seen this over and over and over again that Roman official after Roman official has said, I don't see anything wrong with the way he's done. There's no, there's no crime that he's committed. And they keep allowing him to preach and preach and preach and preach. And now we're officially in the hands of the Roman Empire with this ship and the Roman Caesar, and he is going to usher him in as Yahweh guides the whole thing. And the idea is that neither Yahweh nor the Roman Emperor is going to find anything wrong with Paul. And so there's no reason for any Roman or any Greek person reading this to reject the gospel that Paul is preaching in any kind of way. Because not only has Yahweh brought him through the storm and brought him through the viper biting him, but even the gods didn't take him down for any reason. And Rome has constantly vindicated him. And Rome is going to now usher them into his bosom, so to speak, and vindicate him even more. And the idea is there is no malice of the gospel towards the Roman Empire. There's no reason for it to lash out and kill it in any kind of a way. And it won't until Nero goes insane. Until Nero goes insane. Because rationally speaking, you have no claim against the gospel. You cannot put it on trial. Therefore, Nero has to become insane and illogical in order for him to begin to destroy the gospel and in that kind of a way. Verse 12, we put in at Syracuse which is a large island. Think of it like a football. It's what the boot is kicking. It's a large island right at the toe of the boot of Italy, Syracuse, and stayed there for three days. From there we cast off and arrived at Rhegium. And after one day, south winds sprang up, and on the second day we came to Petulio. There we found some brothers and were invited to stay with them seven days. Now brothers here at this point would be Christians, fellow Christians. This is the first evidence of many evidences that Paul is not the one who brought the gospel to Rome for the first time ever, or Italy for the first time ever, that it has already gone there. Maybe from Pentecost and all the people who were there and has gone there, and there are already firmly established churches there, and Paul is going to go there and strengthen. In Paul's letters, his later letters, um, one of the things that he hoped to do is he, when he begins, when he writes Romans, is in that book, that he makes it very clear that I did not convert you and I did not establish you, but I hope to join you and, and strengthen you and disciple you further. And his ultimate desire in Romans is he is writing this letter to help lay the seeds for his arrival so that he could build a home base for the Western spread of the gospel. As Athens was his, not Athens, as um, Antioch was his home base for the Eastern spread of the gospel. And then Ephesus became a slightly minor home base for the northern Mediterranean spread of the gospel. He is hoping to make Rome the base for his western spread of the gospel on the Mediterranean Sea. They meet some brothers there 
who might already be familiar with his letter. They were invited to stay with him for seven days, and this way we came to Rome. And the brothers from there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. That's a city, not a bar where you go to drink. And to meet us. When we saw them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. So two times it says that they entered Rome. They entered Rome when they came to the southern part of the boot and started making their 130-mile walk up the, the southern coast. But then it says, then we came to Rome and entered it when they actually came into the city. Most likely what's going on here, these two mentions of Rome, is, now once again, this is something that like some atheist scholars point out, and they're like, there you go, there's a glitch. Luke forgot what he wrote and repeated it again, and you can't trust him. And if he's glitching in his brain and writing the same thing over, it's like, really, seriously, do you think anybody ever reads, writes anything without rereading it, rereading it multiple times and editing and that kind of stuff? Most likely, the first mention of entering the Rome is the Roman district, the authority of the Rome. We would refer to this, and those who have no idea what I'm talking about because they don't live here, but I'm sure there's other examples in other parts of the U.S., but we refer to Columbus and the greater Columbus area. And a lot of times, we, it's very common to refer to Columbus as including Hilliard and New Albany and Westerville and Worthington and, and, and Dublin and, and Powell and all kinds of stuff, all those neighboring circling cities that all encompass around the 270 or a major outer belt. Most likely, even though he's not entering literal Rome, this is the Roman district. Its influence spreads out. All these cities are suburbs or belong to Rome. There are stones throw from Rome itself. These two mentions of Rome is the district of Rome and its power and authority and then actually entering in Rome itself. As he comes to this first city on the southern part of the boot, there are people further up the coast, this slightly southern coast that's moving northwest as he goes up the boot on the southern part. There are people who've come from the three taverns and through the Forum of Apius. They have come down, they've heard that he's landed and news is spread, and they have walked south to meet Paul so that they can join him and then follow along with him as he's walking north. And this entire time he's just preaching and teaching. And many of them are Christians who knew that he was coming. And many of them may not be Christians as he shares the gospel with them. And so there's almost this scene like Jesus has where we haven't really seen this anywhere. The only time we've ever seen a group of people following Paul from one city to the next are the Jews who want to like destroy him and ruin him in some kind of a way. And they're not walking with him in a talking sense. They just kind of follow him and then stir up problem in the next city. So this is the first time we've seen large crowds walking miles, 50, 30 miles, depending on what city they came from to join Paul, just to literally turn around and start walking back with him and either leaving him when they come to their own city or continue to walk with him as he moves up to Rome. And this image, the only other time we've really seen crowds following you as you walk is Christ. And so once again, Luke is creating this Christ-like chiastic idea as he's wrapping up his two-part gospel of the works of the Spirit or the works of Jesus and then the works of the Spirit as we go through here. For Paul, 
This has got to be absolutely energizing. In many ways, it's got to be exhausting because it's a lot of walking and preaching and teaching and that kind of stuff. But it's also going to be energizing after a giant ordeal of being in a hurricane and shipwrecked and cold and miserable. And now after all this time, he's like experiencing healing. He's leading people to Christ. And now Christians are coming out from all this season to walk with him and encourage them. And this has got to be firing him up again as he's experiencing this. It is verse 16 that the end of the we section. So we do not have the we section anymore. And when we get into verse 17, chapter 28, verse 17, we no longer have the we. Whatever reason, Luke has gone back or gone somewhere else or maybe stayed in one of these cities. We don't know. But he is no longer with Paul. Now we will be, we'll find out later that Luke will come and visit him while he's in prison in Rome at different times. But there's going to be at least a year while he's in Rome that's not going to be mentioned or record the events of it in Acts. Later we'll find out that Luke will visit him and that kind of stuff. But this is the end of the official we sections from this point on to the end of the book pretty much. We will learn in Philemon verse 24 and in Colossians 4.14 that Luke will visit him again after this point. But he seems to no longer be staying with Paul and no longer seems to be traveling with him anymore from this point on. Verse 17. After three days, Paul called the local Jewish leaders together when they had assembled. And he said to them, Brothers, although I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancient ancestors from Jerusalem, I was handed over as a prisoner to the Romans. And when they had heard my case, they wanted to release me because there was no basis for a death sentence against me. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, and not that I had some charge to bring against my own people. So for this reason, I have asked to see you and speak with you, for I am bound with this chain because of the hope of Israel. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea about you, nor have any of the brothers come from there and reported or said anything about bad about it, you. But we would like to hear from you what you think. For regarding this sect, we know that people everywhere speak against it. Meaning the way, Christians. Now remember, he's still in chains, so to speak. I mean, he's not handcuffed with chains hanging on him like he's in some chain gang or like walking like Hannibal Lecter or something kind of stuff as he's making this journey. He is under house arrest. He's not bound. He's free to go wherever he wants and do what he wants as long as he's heading towards Rome. But he is still has Roman soldiers with him and walking. Can you imagine that? Like, these Roman soldiers have just experienced a miraculous um, escape from a shipwreck as Paul has prophesied twice before them what God would do. And then now they have, to, they have to stay with him all the time. And so they come and they watch him get bit by a viper and nothing happens to him. And then he heals this person and then he heals a bunch of other people. And then now he sails up to Rome and all these people are like coming out of the villages to hear him preach and they have to hear him preach. This entire time they're forced to walk with him and stick with him as all this is happening. This is why Paul and later in his writings will say, even though Nero will not respond to the gospel in any kind of way, Paul will make it very clear the entire Praetorian Guard, which is the most elite soldiers and guards of the Roman Empire, they're, they're our, our version of the Secret Service in charge of guarding Caesar and his most closest people in the capital. All the Praetorian Guard have heard the gospel. They, they've, they, they've been taking turns being 
um, next to him as they rotate out. They've traveled with them. They've been there for the trials. Obviously, not everybody's going to accept Christ, but many of them will. Many of them will go back to their families and their friends and that kind of stuff. This is one of those reasons that Paul does not see any of this as an inconvenience. It's not fun. It's not happy-go-lucky. He has his moments of depression, has his moments of doubt and wanting to give up and discouragement. We have seen that when God has come to him and said, do not be afraid. I am with you. He is human. He is real. But he's not defeated by any of this because he always sees another chance to preach the gospel to people and every opportunity that he has. And so this is what we see as these people are with him. And so they're allowing him. So one of the first thing he does is even though many Christians are coming out to see him and travel with him, the first thing he does is he calls the Jews together. The Jews who have not converted. The the leaders and the elders of the synagogues. Because to the Jews first. This still is hard. The ministry is Jews and Gentiles. But he brings them to assure them that the gospel is not anti-Jewish and that he's not here to attack them or get vengeance or be pitted against them in any kind of way despite anything that the Jews from Jerusalem have said. And then they're like, we haven't heard anything. Nobody, nobody has come from Jerusalem to tell us anything. Would they who brought these charges against you have not showed up in any kind of a way? Remember, in order for this trial to be legit, the accusers have to show up according to Roman law. And so they're like, they haven't shown up. And nobody who just happened to be like in the crowds or hearing things or the gossip gossip of the inquirer, the sun, have come and spread this as they've gone back and forth between the east and west coast. We don't know anything. But what we do know is about this growing movement called the way. And we would like to hear more about that. But what this shows you is that Paul is still really concerned about the Jews. He wants them to understand that no matter if they had heard something, that no matter what they have heard in any kind of a way, the gospel nor he is hostile to the Jews in any kind of a way. In fact, the first thing he mentions is, I have been preaching the gospel. And there, this, this is fulfillment of scripture and that kind of stuff. So whatever they've told you, this, there's, this, there's no dispute. There's no contradictions. There's no conflict between these, the First Testament and the Second Testament gospel. But the other thing he says is, I'm not here to be pitted against the Jews in any ways. Now, the reason he would mention this is, according to Roman law, Paul has every right to file a counter lawsuit against the Jewish people. They have made his life miserable for the last two, three years. Three years of conflict, the first one year of conflict and falling around and riling things up and then coming to Jerusalem and then two years now being stuck. Political red tape hell and limbo as he is trying to figure out, wait for Rome to get the courage to pronounce something on him with Felix, um, Festus and Felix specifically. He has every right. If somebody brings an accusation against you and disrupts your life, and then it doesn't pan out, or the accusers don't show up, or it finds out that it's all false, or whatever, you have every right to do a counter lawsuit against them. But Paul, what Paul's saying is, whatever you've heard, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sue the Jews. I'm not gonna. Obviously, I'm not gonna sue you. You had nothing to do this. But I have no intention even suing the people who are directly responsible for doing this against me and have tried to kill me multiple attempts, I have no hostility towards them. What this shows is, according to the First Testament, the law forbids you to sue people. 
It forbids you to sue people in any kind of a way because it's not trusting God. And it's you trying to get what you think you deserve rather than trusting God to take care of you. But the other thing is, Paul is saying I'm in alignment with the First Testament law because I'm not going to do that. But I'm also in line with the law of the Second Testament, which is grace and love and forgiveness. Paul says, I have no desire to do this. And so this shows you that his desire to have good relations with the Jews and for them to embrace the gospel is so important to him that he would call a meeting and the first thing he would do is try to set the record straight. Even though he's at fault, no way. No way he's at fault for anything that's happened. Yet he's coming to them and making sure that the relationship is good. To make sure the relationship is good. And they respond and say, we want to know about this thing that has been moving over there. Growing over there. They set a day, verse 23, to meet with him. And they came to him where he was staying in even greater numbers. From morning until evening, he explained things to them, testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some of them were convinced by what he said, but others refused to believe. So they began to leave, unable to agree among themselves, after Paul made one last statement. He says this, The Holy Spirit spoke rightly to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah when he said, and then he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will never understand. And you will keep on looking, but never perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and their ears are hard of hearing. And they have closed their eyes so that they would not see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, be advised that this salvation from God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Once again, many Jews are listening, and many believe Him and receive and convert. At this point, there's no mention of Holy Spirit and baptism, because at this point, we know that that now happens. Remember, the Bible does this. The first first genealogy in Genesis 5, He died, He died, He died, He died, He died, because that never happened before. Every genealogy after that never mentions people die because we know that's what happens. So at this point, we're not getting baptisms. We're not getting the Holy Spirit coming down. We're getting no speaking in tongues. I'm not saying none of that's happening. But Luke is not mentioning any of that specifically because we now know, we have seen this so many times, that we now know that this is what happens. This is what happens. But many do not receive. And then they begin to debate. And then Paul's like, here we go again. And then he quotes from Isaiah. Now, I'll give you a context of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is one of those chapters that just shows you how depressing it would be to be a prophet. Isaiah is brought into the heavenly divine council of Yahweh, where he's seeing Yahweh sit on a throne, and the train of Yahweh's glory covers the entire planet. And he sees these seraphims, these flaming, on fire, multi-winged, divine beings flying around him and they're chanting holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come and he sees us and their voices just the voice of these divine beings just rattles and shakes all of the temple let alone the voice of god 
And it's this absolutely phenomenal seat, scene. It's one of the very few scenes of the divine counsel of Yahweh that we get of Yahweh sitting on the throne. And, and, then, and then immediately he falls to the ground and says, Woe is me, like, I have, I'm a sinner who's come into the presence of God. I'm going to die. The word woe is like the most deep, mournful, sorrowful depression of anguish that you could cry out in any kind of way. And so he's like, I'm going to be undone on a molecular level in a kind of a sense because I've come into the presence of God. And that's where God cleanses lips and says, I want you to go out and preach. But when he does that, he says, who will go? Okay, the divine counsel. He's like, I'm asking for a volunteer for go, to go out and preach to the people. And this is when Isaiah says, here I am. I'm so excited. I've seen God. I'm alive. He wants a, a follower to go out and do his will and preach the gospel. Yes, I am so excited. And he's ready to go. And God says, he says, what should I preach though, God? And God says, preach the destruction, preach the coming of the judgment. And, and, and he says, but how long should I do this, God? And he says, forever because they will never respond and they will never come and they will all be judged and it's like oh <laughs> like i want to be a teacher yay i want to be an artist yay i want to be a gardener yay and they're like but how long should i do this forever and nobody will listen to anything you say or appreciate it. You will never sell any artwork ever. No plant will ever grow in your entire life. But just keep on doing it. <laughs> what Isaiah is introduced to. Their eyes will never see. Their ears will never hear. Because they are stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. And the Babylonians are going to come. First the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And that's the context of what Paul quotes here to them. You are that generation. You are that generation. The first time that we saw Paul preach to a massive group of Jews, it was in Acts chapter 13. And he quoted from Isaiah 49, verse 6. And in this quote, he was emphasizing that he was going to go to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And it was more of a, if you don't accept this, well, one, it's a two-part First, going to the Gentiles no matter what. This is your mission as Jews. From the very minute that God called Abraham, and in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation, make you great descendants. Uh, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to, and I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to the world. And then, time after time after time, we see this, where he goes to Rahab, and he goes to Tamar, and he goes to Maruth. And, and then when we get to the prophets specifically, God over and over again says that people from all the nations, their old day will come when they will come to the mountain of God, the cosmic mountain. They will come into the new garden, new temple, the new Jerusalem, has multiple names in the prophets. This is the ultimate goal of Israel, to be a light on a hill that will attract the Gentiles into them as a people group. Today we are called to be a light that goes out into the world, but they were called to be a light that attracted people to the nation of Israel. And then when he quoted verse 40, 49, or chapter 49, verse 6, when he quoted that, the idea was that this is the beginning of his ministry, and what he was saying is, this is your and my purpose as Jews. The gospel is here. The day has come 
the banquet of God that Jesus talked about in his parables. And we are to go out and open it up and invite people from all over the nations and all over the world, including even the lame, to come and flood into the cosmic mountain of God. Join me. Join me. Come, accept your Messiah, and then go out and spread and bring him in. And he says, but if you don't join me, this is still going to happen. This is still going to happen. But now, after many years of him doing this, and rejection after rejection after rejection, people have accepted, but mostly rejection. Now, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, and it's harsher. At this point, he's not quoting the, the hope and the desire of God that Israel would join him and going to the nations. Now he's quoting the part where Israel is pointing, passing the point of no return, where they themselves have rejected the cosmic mountain of God and the way that he's envisioned it because they wanted it the way that they had envisioned it. And, and now he's saying judgment's coming. The Assyrians and the Babylonians are going to destroy you. And the Assyrians are going to kill over 90% of the ten tribes in the north. And many of the Jews aren't going to fare well either when the Babylonians come. Paul says, you have become those people now again. And Jesus gave you another chance. He came to that fig tree that was not producing any fruit. The fig tree was the national symbol of Israel, the Jewish people. And he saw that it was bearing no fruit, and he gave it one more year. And when he saw that it wasn't producing fruit, and a year later when he came back to it, he cursed it, and it died as a symbol of the 70 AD that was coming, where the Romans would destroy everything. Paul says you're getting to that again. And not, not only have you rejected Christ when he came here, but now you're rejecting the resurrection of Christ, and now you're rejecting the Spirit of God. 70 AD is getting a whole lot closer. We're in the 60s now. And it's getting a whole lot closer where you will be scattered. And, and, and now the Jews very rarely come to Christ. Many do, don't get me wrong. But we don't hear about that a lot. And so what he's saying is that this is now a, a message of judgment, a message of a final warning. And then he goes to them, and now it's a, it's a lot more terse. And I'm going to the Gentiles. And not that, please go with me to the Gentiles. And even if you don't come, we're still going. But now it's more of, they will accept, unlike you. And they will become the people that God will use. We're coming to the point where it will no longer be the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. We're coming to the point where the Gentiles will be the vast majority of the church. But once again, don't read into this. And I know none of people are here because we've been doing this week after week, but there are a lot of people who do. That this, at this point, Paul is completely rejecting the Jews. And nobody can ever come to Christ ever again. There's this dominant replacement theor um, theology that some people have in the church today where, where God has literally signed off on rejecting the Jews and they can never come back. And then some of them fit into this category where maybe one day in the seven-year tribulation re revelation, they, the, the, the gate will be open again and they'll be allowed in. But... They had to sit in the back alley with the door closed and locked to the concert for the last 2,000 years and however many more. And then some believe that never, never will they ever be invited ever again in any kind of a way. They, they, they had their chance. That's a very popular view of the Catholic Church. So that's why they supported Hitler. And the, 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 not, not every Catholic, but the Catholic hierarchy did. 
and the extermination of the Jews. But there's nothing here that says God is done with you completely as a people and you're now completely written off and there's no hope of you ever coming in ever. That, that's not here. That's reading way too much into this. That's reading way too much into this. And so all he's saying is, don't, I'm, on an, I'm in a new part of the world. Don't do the same thing that the eastern part of the world is doing. Because what we'll see is he continues to do this. He'll continue to go to the Jews even after this message. We are in the conclusion, so to speak, of Acts. And it's ending in a bittersweet kind of a sense. It's a triumph and a tragedy in the same sense. What we have seen is the gospel has spread absolutely phenomenally throughout the Mediterranean world. And Jews and Gentiles have come to Christ. But it's ending in a tragic kind of sense, too, because as a whole, the Jews have shown to be more antagonistic towards the gospel and to reject it more common than the Gentiles have. There's a, there's a, a triumph of the gospel here as the whole world is hearing and embracing the gospel. But there's a tragedy that the very people that God originally called Abraham and his people are walking away from it. Not everybody, but as a whole, they're walking away from it and they're shutting it down. 